Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. And welcome to the podcast, Winterfellas, episode 276 of the podcast. It's our Game of Thrones read, week 16, where we're covering John 8, Daenerys 7, Tyrion 8, and Catelyn 10. My name is Matt Murdick, and I am from podcastwinterfell.com. That's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast, contact links, uh, social media links, and podcatcher links. And if you take the time to leave me a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcatcher app you use, I will be sure to thank you right in this very spot of the next podcast, as long as you do so, um, you know, by a Wednesday, which is when we usually record these, uh, then I will make sure to thank you in the very next podcast that we record. Uh, yada, yada, yada about Podcast Winterfell. Also, remember that we did put out a GNC theory cast uh, just recently, Podcast Winterfell 273, for those of you who are um, tired of rereading books, um, you can still speculate about what's happening in them with that podcast. And uh, some of you might get some answers on some of this stuff that we've been theorizing about over the last year uh, with season six of the television show. Uh, I want to send out a little bit of solidarity to my buddy at Angry GOT fan um, who recently just got uh, blocked by a guy who uh, I blocked last year. Anyway, um, Let's uh, go ahead and get into talking about these books and introduce our panel who are going to be doing so. First of all, we're going to start with our returning guest, Susan, who, Susan, you tweeted at me earlier today, these four chapters are important. Why do you think so? Oh, I just think that, uh, you know, some very uh, pivotal things happen in them. I mean, in uh, John, we have uh, the stuff that happens with, uh, what he learns about what's going on in King's Landing and, and Master Aemon and uh, Danny, we have the you know her first real experience with the horrors of war and the Mary Mesdor coming into the picture, and then we have two major battles that happen with uh, the Green Fork and the Whispering uh, Woods here. So I think that some pivotal pivotal events are going on in these chapters. Excellent. Well, and thanks for joining us. We'll be looking forward to your talking about them. And we welcome back. She's back from the dead, or at least back from the sickness. We welcome yes. back Stephanie. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad to be back, as always. Excellent. Well, uh, we are glad to have you. And why don't we go ahead and just get right into John 8. Here is your quick summary. John and the Lord Commander have survived the white attack and John is given a special Valerian steel sword that belonged to the Lord Commander prior. It has been repummeled with a wolf's head, but John keeps the name that the sword was originally given, Longclaw. Receiving information from Sam about Rob's march south, John is then summoned by Maester Aemon, where he learns a lesson about what the Night's Watch oath 
really means. Um, I, I guess I just want to start off with this. For you new readers, uh, Maester Eamon, I just want to say this real quickly, Maester Eamon talking about his brother Aegon, do not uh, confuse that with Aegon the Conqueror who first came to Westeros. Um, sometimes all of these names, uh, there are a lot of kings named Aegon, and in this case, he's referring to Aegon the Fifth, not Aegon the First. So um, you can find out more about Aegon the Fifth in the supplementary book series, the Duncan Egg books. So uh, there you go. I don't want to spoil too much of that for you. Probably already did just by telling you who he is or that he's in those books. But anyway. Uh, I just wanted to say that, just so that people wouldn't be confused and think that Maester Eamon was like 300 years old or something like that. Let's get to uh, you, Susan. What do you got for us? And I just to comment on what you said there, uh, Matt. One of the things, John, or uh, that uh, uh, George Martin did that on purpose was kind of as, as a, a nod to in. In real life history, you like to look at the English kings. We have all these Edwards, all these Henrys, and so forth. So it's kind of you know doing the same thing with uh, some of his his uh, uh, kings there. But uh, well, we learn in this chapter that uh, both uh, John and Mormont are recovering from their white attack, and John's arm is pretty badly burnt, though. Master Eamon says that uh, those scarred that it should work as good as as, uh, as before once it's healed properly. Yeah, and you know that's something that's interesting about this, and this is really just a book thing, but it's not like it's consequential to the plot or anything. But as you read further on, if you're a new reader, if, as you read further on, John constantly, uh, when he's thinking about things or or when something's stressing him out. He moves his, he wriggles his fingers a lot. You know, it kind of reminds him of the uh, of of this very moment, right? Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't sure whether we wanted to mention that or, or not at this point, but yes, it seems like he. It actually, I was thinking that while Master Raymond says that it should work as good as normal, it seems that actually he has to continue to exercise it because it becomes stiff and so forth. And so, yeah, he is always doing that, and he's very conscious of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Very good. Uh, Stephanie, what do you got for us? Well, first I want to say about John's arm. I didn't notice that in my first read um, a few years ago, but now that I'm rereading it, those those details, like his arm injury and everything, those have – become more prevalent because, you know, you're always finding new things to look out for each time you read it. So I'm glad you guys pointed that out um, because I noticed that as well. Um, So John gets Mormont's um, sword, which I think is really cool because obviously he was Ned's bastard, so he would never be able to get an ancestral sword from him. And obviously... Your Mormont son is a creepy weirdo who's off with Danny. Um, so I think <laughs> it's very nice and, you know, a, a kind of a cool moment that Mormont's almost adopting John in a certain way. Kind of, you know, he wants to groom him for Lord Commander, but he's also here, take my sword. You know, I, I, I feel like it's a nice moment. And there's so many father-son moments and 
you know, surrogate father-son moments, and I think this is a nice, a nice moment. Well, I do too, but what did you get on your take from John himself, though? <laughs> because he, you know, he even kind of was thinking that, you know, it was kind of like a, a really nice thing for the Lord Commander to do, but he basically walks out of there going, this guy isn't my dad. You know, yeah, he's, yeah. That, that was my other thing. Like, so, yes, it's a nice moment in my head that it's nice, but in John's head, he's like, well, I'm still Ned Stark's son, and this, and, you know, the brothers, they just want to see the sword. Um, I think that just speaks to maybe John's, he's a teenager, he's a kid, he, maybe he's just not thinking like that. I don't know. What do you think, Susan? <laughs> well, yeah, I think, you know, he was really struggling with it because he feels like, you know, I, I should be really honored about this, and, you know, what a fantastic blade it is. You know, he recognizes, of course, you know, that as a Valyrian steel uh, sword, that that's uh, quite an honor, quite a special thing to have. Um, but he does. He feels conflicted about it as if, uh, you know, Mormont's trying to buy him or something. And, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, he's going so to stay loyal to his father. And, and he also has those memories of, of ice, too. You know, he thinks back on how a child, he you know, would would dream that that he could, uh, you know, that that would give him ice and tell him that that he was, you know, pro- had proved himself to be a real Stark. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. interesting. It shows that you know John's got very conflicted feelings about a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and I also feel like it demonstrates just how much the situation that's going on in King's Landing is in his head and preoccupying him. You know. Because he can only focus on on the fact that Ned, his father, uh, is is trapped, and now of course Rob has has gone down to to save him, and and he feels uh, well not left out. He just feels like that he's not able to do enough where he's at. I think is what he's really feeling. But it it it's got to be something like that. I mean, imagine you're you're in the military and you're stationed somewhere, and uh, you guys are pinned down in, in a battle or something like that, uh, and yet somehow news gets to you that your, your, your father has died or your father has been incarcerated or, or, or something to that effect, uh, and there's nothing you can do. Um, it's hard to stay focused on the battle. Uh, fortunately, at least as far as John is concerned, there's nothing there right now that will get him killed, uh, so that's good. Um, what about the fact that in, in the mentions with Mormont, I mean, uh, that he sent uh, Alistair away with, with the hand? I cannot remember. Is Was it Alistair that went with the hand in the TV show, or was it Yorin? I cannot remember. I guess it um, wasn't. Actually, you know, I think you know, we were mentioning earlier about... Uh, Ryan Cosman doing these uh, tweets right now about his favorite episodes, and I think that there was a mention in one of them about the fact that they were going to have Alistair show up in King's Landing with that, and somehow that part of it got cut out. So I'm not sure that... Oh, they didn't even cover it in the show. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't couldn't remember, uh, because it it seemed like that would have stuck out to me if it had been in the show, so uh, good point. But... Um, 
do you think that as readers we should have hope that if somebody takes a hand that might still move from time to time uh, down in a jar to King's Landing, wouldn't you think that would like inspire someone to do something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet, uh, you know, it was easy to cut from the television show, I think, because essentially King's Landing is in such turmoil from the from the time that all of this stuff with Ned happens that uh, you know even if even if Alistair had gotten an audience with Joffrey or even with somebody like Pycelle or or whatever um, would anybody have even listened was was there just too would there be just too much going on for them to care because I think one of the big things about the whole George R. R. Martin series is the fact that we see all of these people getting wrapped up, not necessarily in petty differences, but in much more local political things. And because of that, the bigger problem, which is this threat in the North, is ignored for a good part of the series, right? I Yeah, I agree. Um, they seem to think that the, in the South, they seem to think that the Northerners are superstitious, you know, they believe in grunkins and giants and everybody in the South just kind of like, oh, those, you know, silly people up there. Like, we have stuff to worry about here. People are breaking out in war. And then there's that they kind of are aware of Danny. and Well, they are aware of Danny. And so I think they're just kind of worried about all that stuff. And they don't, they, they still don't really care what's going on in the North. Well, they've got the wall. The wall should keep any of that stuff out. I mean, obviously. Obviously. Um, yeah, great. Uh, Susan, what do you got for us? Um, well, uh, a couple of things that I that I keyed in on was one is that it is mentioned that uh, the Rangers, Mormons Rangers, found no other sign of Benjamin or of the other men. So, you know, they did, did cover that, you know, besides those two whites that were found, we still have no idea what happened to the rest of them. Um, and then also, um, oh, and, and one more comment too about Alistair Thorne and that uh, you know him sending him off is in John's thoughts. He almost feels that that shows much, uh, if not more, of how much Warmont was putting faith in him that he would he would take that measure as to send him off so that that he wouldn't have. Uh, the tension with the two of them going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we have the news of Barristan's dismissal uh, and that the gold club tried to seize him and a couple of them got cut down. And uh, this is, uh, you know, concerning to them, uh, both to Lord Mormont and to John, because they had really been counting on Barristan to put in a good word for that situation and that if things, you know, if he was, found guilty that uh, that he would potentially have the opportunity to take the black. Right. Yeah. Um and and that's great for for you new readers because uh I think as we mentioned last week there's much more going on in Barristan's story throughout the books which you'll continue to read and this is just another little visit into that evidently the gold cloaks did try to catch him and he got away, right? So um, now we don't know where he is from that point f- 
forward so far, but uh, just keep an eye out for little mentions of things that might have happened to Barristan and Selmy as you go through the rest of this book or uh, into books in the future, which I hope you will all read. So I love that. Um, but yeah, the key thing here, of course, like you mentioned, Susan, is the fact that the Lord Commander um, had hope in, in getting more help, more or less. And uh, there's not going to, there's not even sending Alistair down. Um, it's all just on will will the Night's Watch get any more help? And as you can probably know from the TV series, eh, not much help comes. Um, but at any rate, another question that I wanted to ask in regards to the television show is, now we know that Ned's bones got delivered to Catelyn by Littlefinger. But what happened to those bones after that? Do we know? I don't think we know for sure what happened to them. They were supposed to be, quote, unquote, taken back to Winterfell to be in the crypt. But unless I'm mistaken, which somebody tell me if I am, I don't think we know what happened to them or if they ever made it to Winterfell. We know ladies' bones, the wolf did, Mm -hmm. but I don't think we ever got an answer about Ned's. And the reason that I ask this is because of John's dream about Ned's face uh, in place of Ulther. And at the end of season four, of course, uh, when Bran is, is trying to get to the tree, a whole bunch of skeletons just come together. I guess those are whites as well. And they're coming after yeah. uh, Bran and Jojen and Mira uh, and, and causing a great deal of, of desolation to that party and what so my question is is how possible is it that ned's bones could reassemble themselves and become a white at some point if the white walkers ever get that far south oh boy (laughs) that's one of those really tricky questions which i still i'm still kind of hung up on what whether uh bones of any dead person can be reanimated by them or whether it has to be ones that were killed by the White Walkers themselves. I'm still really um, uh, not clear on the way that works. But um, that and, Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I, I was just going to point out that it, one other thing that does come up in this chapter is about the other White. I mean, we, we heard about Other, but uh, but the the other one, uh, Jafer Flowers, also had uh, you know killed a couple of men before he was taken down. Uh, they had right. uh, sliced them into a number of pieces. Was, uh, uh, he slew Jeremy Riker, who was the kind of like the head ranger at this point, and four other men. Amazing. Right. And that's a great question to ask Susan about uh, whether the whites or you know if it, or, or if the bones have to be killed by a white walker or a white in order to be reanimated. Um, well, and add of, to that. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say adding to that. I want to know how far the reach is of how the power of how far away or close they need to be to be animated. You know what I mean? Like how far does the magic and the power go through? Yeah. Super, you know, how many miles away or there's a lot of miles. 
how many miles that the White Walkers have to be from the from the White. You mean that they're that they're uh, controlling? Yes. Yeah. Like yeah. how far their reach is. Like could they, you know, reanimate bones that are in King's Landing? Like that seems unlikely, but you right. know, how far how far their power extends. And let's think about this. What if some kind of magic is transferred due to touch uh, of the whites to persons, whether they are killed or not, and if they eventually do die? Because you think about this. I mean, that white had its hand around John's throat, right? Right. And what we know from the TV show so far is that John is dead. So is it possible that the White Walkers could reanimate him? Because he's mm. dead in the books, too. That's right. why I'm asking this. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But I don't know. But I think that's just one of these things that we just don't have enough information yet. No? Can't right. Answer. And so I'm just trying to ask questions to make this chapter more interesting for me, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be perfectly honest. Um, but let's get to, back to you, Stephanie. you got another point. Well, I think the, the conversation that Maester Eamon brings up with John, um, I think Susan was pointing out, or maybe Matt, that, you know, or Matt, yeah, Net, you know, John's father's trapped in King's Landing, his brother's leading an army, John's obviously preoccupied with these thoughts, can't really focus on the wall, and Maester Eamon kind of puts him in check and is like, you know, you took a vow, you have to... You can't be worried about all that, um, which I, I found to be a good conversation. And then we find out who Maester Eamon is. Yeah, I think, actually, I think that this has uh, some of the, the loveliest language uh, in this chapter that, you know, Master Eamon has about, uh, you know, what he has to say about, do uh, you hear the train in my background here? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hold on a minute. Yeah, it's all good. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. Well, anyways, Master Eamon, you know, when he's talking to John, um, and, um, you know, he's talking about the vows and so forth, but, uh, this, you know, the question about, uh, you know, what what is the purpose of vows that uh, you will not love because love is the bane of honor, death is duty, and, you know, all that he goes into about, you know, what is, you know, what is a vow as compared to, you know, holding a newborn in your arms and all this. I, th- I think, you know, some beautiful language in there and, and bringing up these things for, for John to think about. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, John kind of lashes out at him with, you know, you, you don't understand, you know, you don't know what's going on. You don't, you know, I you have no idea what I'm going through. And when Master Amen, you know, kind of reveals about how you know, his, he's been uh, tested and so forth and that this brings out the realization of who he is for John. It's, it's pretty, you know, it's a very poignant moment, I think, in the in the story. I agree with that. And what I love is the amount of sacrifice that it's required. And, and Maester Eamon says that he had three times that his vows yes. were tested. Um, and it makes me interested in what the other two times involved. Agreed. Really was, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to know what what those were. I mean, you know, we I would think that um, uh, you know testing that obviously about when uh, the uh, 
whether he was going to take the kingship or not, and the fact that he gave that to Ed, that's one test. And then what happened when he was on the wall as far as Robert's Rebellion and, and what happened there. But what was the first test, I wonder? Yeah. Yeah. Once when he was a boy, and I don't know what that would have been. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't have any idea. Uh, but I would be interested to know. Um, something else about Mr. Amen's speech is, you know, I mean, we heard John and Sam say their words at the heart tree. Um, but to me, uh, Mr. Amen's talk gives so much more depth and and difficulty to maintaining those words. And, and it also, I, I think the way that he puts it makes the oath um, so much more uh, binding, you know. And I wonder if John or Sam really understood the depth of that when they said those words. Obviously, John didn't (laughs) based on this chapter, but I mean, what what about Sam as well? I think maybe the gra- the gravity and the meaning of the word, like they knew what they were saying, but they didn't grasp how serious and how, I guess, binding their vows were until, well, until something tests them like this, like John learning about, you know, his brother going off to war and he wants to be there and, you know. Right. And another question that I had, was about Aegon's um, arrival, and not Aegon V, but I'm talking about Aegon the Conqueror, because uh, Aemon talks about that as well, where he says that, or somebody talks about it, I don't, I think it was Aemon, but it, the watch had as many as 10,000 men when yeah. Aegon first came to Westeros and conquered Westeros. They did well, say something like that, which sounds crazy. Yeah, it was like Lord Heron's brother as Lord Commander, and this was when there were still all different uh, kingdoms, and, and I guess Heron Hall was the last thing that Aegon conquered, or one of the last places that Aegon conquered. Um, outside of, I don't guess they ever really got to Dorne all that well. But uh, Lord Heron's brother as Lord Commander had 10,000 swords to hand. Um, so just in 300 years, the Night's Watch has deteriorated from 10,000 men to what it is now, which is just a a very small slice of that large pie. So is that supposed to imply to us that once the Targaryens were ruling, that's when all of these things about snarks and grumpkins started coming up and, and, and people just stopped sending people to the wall? I mean, are the Targaryens in some way, uh, and this is just speculation, but are they some, in some way, directly or indirectly, uh, responsible for the weakness of the wall at the state that it is in at right now? I, I don't know about that. Now, I mean, you do have, I mean, there, well, first off, there, there were 19 castles on the wall, so if they were all fully manned, 
10,000 men doesn't sound like that would be, you know, an overly large number, actually, if all demand all those castles. Um, well, that's, but, that's less than 1,000 men per castle. Right, right. Um, and in the Targaryen history, you have uh, Queen Alicent, who uh, came to the wall uh, when her husband, uh, King uh, Jaehaerys, flew up to Winterfell, and she went up to the wall and formed a relationship with them to where she gave them some jewels, which they uh, had uh, had built a new castle to replace one that wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't in too good a shape or something at one point. So, I mean, I think, to me, it seems like there was a, a good relationship with the wall and the Targaryens, at least in some of the realms of it. So I'm not sure that that would be the reason. I don't know why, other than, just said over these recent years that people have just not seen, felt that there was really any threat that was worthwhile and their focus was more on other things. But, uh, definitely does seem like a large deterioration in a fairly short period of time if you think of how long that the wall's been there. Right, yeah, because it's it been there thousands of years prior, right? So I feel like that people are not going to the wall now. One, it's almost like a glorified penal penal, penal con colony where they just send the rapists, the murderers, they send people up there almost as a punishment. So it's not like an honor to serve in the Night's Watch anymore. But I also think, and maybe if you guys agree or disagree, that because of the vows that they have to take and you know, they have to take vows of celibacy and they have to forsake any land and titles and inheritance and they can't have kids. Like, that's asking a person to give up a lot. And I think maybe in present-day Westeros, people just don't want to give that up anymore. Um, I think maybe that the vows are just so strict and maybe if they if the Night's Watch loosened them up a little, maybe more people would be willing to join the Watch. But from my perspective, it seems like that's just kind of like the where they send the outcasts now and nobody really wants to go up there. It's not that great of a place. Yeah. Right. And, and so I would it, agree with that. But I do think that, Matt, you have a good point that it just seems, you know, I hadn't really thought about that before, the fact that if they were that strong just 300 years ago, how come recent history may has made such a significant change? What what would have done that? Because something, you know, because at some point in time it was considered to be uh, a uh, a good option. So something's yeah. changed about it. Something has changed about it, uh, and uh, <laughs> maybe it's just the attitude of like the younger brothers and and everything. Because you know, it's like. Obviously, Benjen went to the Night's Watch because, well, probably out of a sense of duty, since we're talk- we did talk about Benjen still being missing, but also because, you know, he was third in line. There was Brandon, there was Ned, you know, so it, it's, not like, uh, it's not like he had much of a chance of becoming the Lord of Winterfell, or it would seem less likely of a chance. Uh, but now maybe little brothers are just plotting to kill their older brothers so that they can have the hall. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just kidding. Uh, what else have we got on this chapter, guys? Anybody? Well, you mentioned Sam before, and we get Sam telling a little bit about his 
uh, his family, we get to mention, besides uh, long claw here, we learn about another Valerian sword uh, called Heartsbane that belongs to Sam's family. Uh, yeah. And I also uh, enjoyed some of the things that uh, Master Eamon was relating to John. Uh, we get the little uh, tidbit about the fact that King Baylor, who was Baylor the Blessed, wanted to uh, replace the ravens with doves, which didn't work out very well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and he also talks about how, you know, when John tells him, you know, John, he asks John to feed the, you know, take over feeding the birds from Clytus and, uh, you know, he's feeding them this uh, cut up meat uh, that uh, Master Amon, or Master, or Master Amon, that Lord Gormont's birds eats fruit and corn. And Amon says that he is a rare bird. And I just wonder if that's another little, uh, hint to us about how special that bird is. The bird uh, says a lot of things that you wouldn't think a bird would say in this particular chapter. It's very alarming how much the bird says. (laughs) I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I was noting those down. Some of them didn't seem to necessarily have a huge amount of relevance, but but there were some that did, and he definitely had you know, repeated quite a bit this, this chapter. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, uh, and maybe what George is trying to say, at least at this point, is that you can think either this this bird is, is a really good parrot in the way that it can just repeat <laughs> things pretty quickly, um, or you can take it the way, Susan, that you and I, and I imagine Stephanie does, that, um, that there, there's something else going on with this bird. Yes. Yeah, good call there. Uh, Stephanie, what do you got? Anything else? Anything else on this? I don't really have anything else on this chapter. This was the weakest of the four today, I feel like. (laughs) Uh, Susan, what else you got? Anything? Uh, I don't think so. Really? All right. Um, Well, I don't either. Darn it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I did my best to try and uh, and 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 hang in there and and come up with some crazy crackpot things since we don't have Bubba here to help us out. We miss we miss Bubba from the Joffrey podcast. He couldn't be with us this week. I'm not exactly sure why, but we wish him well. On to the Nerys Seven. Danny rides with Kalasar as they attack the Lazarine. I'm not sure if I said that name right. Danny forbids men to rape the women and takes them as slaves to protect them. When she finds Drogo wounded, one of the slaves, Miri Mazdor, claims she has the knowledge to heal Drogo and is permitted to work on him. Danny then asks Miri Mazdor to be her semi kind of like midwife during the birth of her son. Uh, let's start with you, Stephanie. What do you got? Oh boy, this Danny chapter. It's such a pivotal moment in her storyline, I feel like. I, I'm not even sure where to start. Um but I do pronounce it Lazarine, just like you did, the sheep people. Uh, I don't know. Let's go on to Susan. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All right, Susan, you get the daunting task. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I agree. You know, like, I, like uh, Stephanie said, this is typical to her uh, her arc. I mean, we have the whole thing. The last time we were with Danny was when 
called Drogo due to the attempted poisoning decided that yes, he would take up her uh, desire to to conquer Westeros. So uh, uh, they start out on this this campaign here, and they are uh, you know she's seeing this massacre happening in this town, and uh, it's definitely affecting her. I mean, she's really getting a close up view of the cost of war here as as um, she's coming into this town that's been just pillaged and people are dead all over the place. Uh, uh, sheep are dead all over the place. Uh, apparently, another Calisar had been in the midst of, of uh, sacking this town to begin with. Uh, and then they had come upon them because at one point she mentions that probably the more uh, hopeful or naive of the group thought that maybe they were there to, to help them out when they first saw them come in. But Carl Drogo had uh, overtaken this other Kalasar, so you have both the captives of this new Kalasar and of the city that they're taking taking on. And, uh, you know, Jorah is talking to Danny about how this is really going to help them out, and he's giving different options on how they're going to be able to make the most money out of their slaves and so forth. And you really, you know, you know his mindset, you know, this is just all part of what's going on. And uh, and then she she starts to to uh, uh, stop the extreme violence that's taking place on on these poor women that are being raped. And of course, Jora and the uh, Blood riders and so forth that are with her are, are telling her, you know, well, this is this is just part of it. You know, they're really shocked at, at her desire to do this, but she commands them, and so they they go ahead and do so. Right, and and there's some great things in that that, that you mentioned in all of that that I, I want to touch on. Yes. It, one is, um, I, I found the irony. Uh, well, I found several ironies in this chapter, but one irony, of course, is that. Drogo and this other call, when they were in Vastoth Rock, had sat at the table of honor together, right? Yes, right. And and so you know that that shows how strictly, first of all, and and Stephanie, you'll love me for saying this, but that 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 really helps build the world in how strong <laughs> the laws in Vastoth Rock are, because. Uh, while they have no problem trying to kill each other out here in the rest of the world, you wouldn't, they wouldn't even have thought of it at, at quote unquote home. Um, secondly, I found an irony in the fact that we, we see in this chapter, Danny's feelings about slaves, uh, especially with the whole mention of, of Marine and, and, and everything like that, which I think is the first mention of Marine yet. She has to kind of take, these women on as her own slaves in order to protect them. Um, I found that kind of ironic that she had to do that herself. Um, so I, I felt like that was uh, just some neat ways for, for George to play with the idea of, you know, the whole world is gray. No matter how, how, how righteous you want to be about something, you still have to, you still have to make the decision in the moment that you think is best. Um, so that's all I had to say about that. 
I'm I'm glad you said that about almost the irony, um, you know, because when Mormont is talking about, you know, we can go to Marine and we can sell these slaves, I got the sense that Danny wasn't completely against that. She was thinking about how, well, this is the price of the Iron Throne. This is the price I have to pay. But she got stopped in her track when, you know, the women were getting raped and everything. Um, I find it I maybe hypocritical, maybe just more like, huh, that's a irony, that she seemed not horribly against going to Marine and getting ships and everything, but, you know, she didn't want the rape. She didn't want raping going on and all that stuff, even though, as they, they explained to her, that's the price of war and stuff. And she's thinking about the price of her Iron Throne. I, I find it. I just find it interesting, especially where her story arc leads her, eventually to Marine. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think it's perfectly safe to talk about that because you know, in, in both the television show and the books, we've seen her become increasingly. Well, by the time that she is at Astapor and at uh, uh, Marine. Uh, and even uh, Yunkai in, in, in the books, um, she has become kind of the champion of freeing slaves, right? Right. So um, is this the budding of that mentality, or was it always present there? What do you think? I think it's probably maybe always been there. I feel like she might have a bit of a Stockholm Syndrome going on from being, you know, kind of abused, not even abused, well, yeah, abused by her brother, but, you know, that's her only brother. She has to be with him, and now she's kind of, she has to be with the Dothraki, and they have to rape and pillage and do everything they do with war, and I think maybe it's just kind of now becoming more to the forefront of her mind. Maybe it was pushed back, maybe it was subconscious before, but now that it's right in front of her, in her face, she's in the middle of it. I think now she's more focused on it, and that's how she gets to where she's, you know, the freer of slaves, you know, no slavery anywhere. So I think I think it's always been there, but it's coming to the forefront. Very good. Susan, do you have a thought on that? Or if you want, yeah, you can I, bring up something else. Well, I, I agree that I think that she has always had a bit of that, as, even especially since, her wedding to Carl Drogo because I believe you know she's felt a bit like a slave since since that happened. Um, it wasn't yeah. a choice of hers. Uh, I do uh, find interesting. You know, we find Carl Carl Drogo here seated behind a pile of heads as tall as him, and one of his, <laughs> one of his nipples has been cut off. Uh, <sighs> you know, pretty. You know, he's he's trying to make light of this wound, but it, does, it sounds pretty awful. The, the reader, and uh, we get Bago, uh, if that's how his name is pronounced, come up to complain to Hago uh, and Drogo about uh, about Danny taking his spoils of war. So I think that's our first mention of this Hago, uh, who will continue to play a role here with Danny as her story progresses. Yeah. Cutting off nipples, that seems to be a theme for George, does it not? Isn't that what happens yeah. to one of the uh, uh, 
one of the guys at Astapar that she ends up buying? <laughs> yeah, I remember when she's, she's uh, telling them not that they don't need to do that. The the master, maybe this is where she, when she sees that that's what they're about to do, she has her memory of call drugs. So it's like, no, no, don't do that. You don't need to do that. Well, and here, it's it's. I feel like it's a much more grave wound. In the show, if we remember back to season one, um, I think Khal Drogo was fight, fighting with his blood riders, and he gets a slice that's a deep cut in his chest, but not, you know, his whole nipple cut off and everything. I feel like this is a lot more serious and more foreboding of a wound. <laughs> right, yeah. The show treated treated this whole situation quite differently because they ended yeah. up uh, having the infighting amongst his own uh, his own Kalasar uh, be the source of his injuries as opposed to a battle. I, it wasn't really injured in the battle itself. They, we kind of joined, I think, uh, after the fact, and and then it was when Danny uh, had pretty much permitted everybody or prevented everybody from from you know, raping the women, um, that one of his own calls kind of came up on him and, and, or one of his own blood riders came up on him and, uh, complained about her and it ended up being a duel, which got the other guys pretty badly killed. I can't remember exactly how bloody it was, but I know it was pretty bloody for the other guy, uh, much more bloody yeah, for him than it was for Carl Drogo. <laughs> yeah. Um, what else we got on this chapter, guys? I well, like Danny. the... Oh, go on. Okay. I was, was going to say, I like how uh, Danny says that, you know, if the warriors want these women, that they should take them to wife, uh, to which this uh, Mongo, you know, replies, does the uh, horse breed with the sheep? And she says, well, the dragon feeds on horse and sheep alike. And Carl Drogo mm-hmm. likes this. He's saying how fierce she is because of her his son growing in her belly. Which isn't the case at all, do you think? I mean, it, it, this is just Danny speaking. It's not she's getting any kind of magical power like Drogo perceives. <laughs> no, no. No. So, yeah. Drogo, you're wrong again, brother. You're wrong again. <laughs> but then Danny makes the most fateful and, like I said, pivotal decision. She decides to take in Miri Mazdor. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. I'm glad you did that. I didn't have to. Um, <laughs> she is literally uh, the killer in sheep's clothing. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, because we know of her portrayal in the show, of course. And um, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot about Mary's encounters or her experience, I guess I should say, that maybe we ought to leave for the spoiler section. But compared to the show... Um, what was each of your impressions? I mean, did both of you read this book before you saw the television show or not, first of all? I did not. You did not. Okay, so you'll be a good one to go. I saw the first three seasons and then read all the books. Okay, very good. Well, well then, uh, when you started to read the book, uh, after you saw the television show, what was? did you have any different impression of Mary Mazdor um, in regards to this chapter, or did you um, 
you or had the television show colored your your perception of her already? The first time the television show definitely colored my perception, but this time it was a little different. Um, I feel like from the show, you know, they take Drogo into a big into a temple and. It's not just out in the open. I feel like it was more of a ritual in this, um, in the book, in the chapter, the way they describe how she treated him or treated his wounds and stuff, not just kind of on the fly like it seemed in the show. Is that kind of what you were asking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's fine. Susan, did did your perceptions about Mary Mesdor change any uh, between book and, and TV show? I read the book, so I had already seen her there. So I'm, I'm not sure that it did. But a couple of things I picked up on when I when I was reading this was that um, Mary Mazdor, when Danny first encounters her, she uh, speaks to her in the common tongue, and mm. no one else does. And I was curious, you know, I didn't see any mention there to confirm or deny whether she had already heard heard uh, Danny speak in the common tongue. I was just kind of like, hmm, I wonder why she knew to, to talk to her in that uh, particular language. Um, and also how, you know, Danny notes that this woman is both well-spoken and that she's wearing, you know, even though she, her clothes have been torn to shreds and so forth, it, it's fine cloth that she's wearing. So she knows this is obviously someone who has uh, you know some education and some wealth. She's not just uh, you know one of the lowly slaves here. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think I think she's you know an interesting character. I mean, there's the whole question that people have about whether she really wanted to harm Drogo from the first. I mean, I think that it can be looked at, you know, from a couple of different ways. And I think that it, it, it seems to be that what she's doing, in my mind, it seems to be that at first she is actually trying to to um, take care of his wound in, a, in a, a good manner. You know, I think that she's someone who initially, you know, it's kind of like doctors were, are kind of sworn to to help the injured people that they come across. So even though the situation is as dire as it is, I, I think she's actually really trying to to uh, do her best by him to begin with. Interesting. Very good. I like that. Um, what else we got on this chapter? I have a what if. <laughs> there you go. Let's have it. So I, I feel like it's maybe an obvious one, but what if um, – Drogo refused to be treated by her because, you know, they were calling her a witch and that, you know, she's mad, you know, they didn't trust her, period. Um, But Danny insisted. So what if Drogo just refused to be treated by her? Would he still die? Would she actually have made it to Westeros? Would anything change or what would have changed if they didn't let this Miri Mazdor touch him. That's interesting. Uh, I'll go first, Susan. I, I think that, to be honest, I mean, I know that he comes out of the whole thing 
really enraged. He comes out of us, Death Rock, really enraged and, and wanting to help Danny get across, across to, to Westeros and, and conquer Westeros. But it still seems to me, even in this chapter, he is so bound by his own personal beliefs. I wonder if he ever could have really found the courage to cross the narrow sea. Mm. Uh, whether he survived or not, I don't know. Uh, what do you think, Susan? I think that's a good point. I mean, you know, as it, towards the end of the chapter, as Mary Mazdor is giving him some very specific instructions on what he needs to do in order for this to heal properly, I mean, he's like, ah, you know, I drink what I want and I do what I want, you know, type of thing. So, you know, I think you know, that's a good point. Um, I did think that it's interesting uh, as far as world building and in response to what Stephanie's asking there, that the Dothraki have with them these two other types of healers, uh, neither of whom were there helping Drogo because he had said, you know, oh, go help my other people first um, because so many other people were injured. So they've got these what they call barren women and eunuchs. And the barren women use potions and spells where the eunuchs use knife, uh, needle, and fire. So kind of like they're like the surgeons and the women are, you know, giving the medicinal potions and so forth. Um, So, you know, I mean, he could, if he didn't use Mary, he could have used one of these other people. And I think it would be just more a matter of, you know, whether he followed the instructions uh, and allowed things to heal the way they they needed to or not. I think Mary, if he hadn't, if he hadn't agreed to use her, uh, he, if he was against her, then that might have been the death of her because certainly his uh, blood riders wanted to kill her. Yeah, that's a good point, too. What else we got on this I, yeah. Oh, I was just I was gonna answer my own what if. Um I think there's a big possibility that he might have just died anyways because of the wound and maybe it would have gotten infected and he would have died. But I feel like maybe he would have listened maybe more to the eunuchs or the barren women. Um, that's just a possibility. And if he did, you know, make it through this injury I'm kind of with Matt on whether he would actually have, you know, stayed or, you know, kept his promise and gone across the narrow sea with his Kalasar and everything. Um, it's an interesting possibility, but I, I, I have a hard time finding or seeing Khal Drogo on the ship coming to take over Westeros. It would be yeah. cool, but it's, it's hard to see that possibility now with everything else we know. I guess it depends on how on your perspective on whether Mary Mazdor has an effect on the pregnancy or not. Mm. But let's say here's a what if for you, Stephanie. Let's say Drogo <laughs> says no, cut her head off. I mean, regardless of the implications that means between Danny and Drogo. Um, but does Danny's child live if Mary is not allowed to administrate her? I. Would Danny's child live? And I'm not sure. And if Danny's child did live, would it be the stallion that mounts the world? I feel like the 
child probably wouldn't live if he had cut off Miri Mazdor's head, but it probably wouldn't have come out with wings and great and worms and scales. I think maybe she just would have it would have died maybe naturally and not in a crazy blood magic way, obviously. But that yeah. that's another interesting that is a good what if. Good job. <laughs> Susan, you can choose to answer yeah. or not. Well, I, you know, that it is interesting because, again, you know, there you have one of these things where at the end it seems like, uh, you know, was the spell that Mary Mazdor was doing at the end there uh, something that would have always intended to take the child or is it because uh, Warmont took her into that tent where all that was going on? And, you know, we don't, don't really know that. Mm. Um, but um, as far as the way the child was born, you know, I think that in reading this story, we think that that you know it was affected by the, the magic. But if you have read, if anybody has read into the um, history, uh, Westeros history stuff, and you get into some of the other Targaryens, there have been mm-hmm. some other babies born similar with mm. the Targaryens. So I wonder if this doesn't have something more to do with their tie to the dragons uh, in terms of the way some of these babies are born. There's a, there's a few of them over the years. That's a good uh, point. I also want to just say in response to your whole thing about the eunuchs and, and the barren women, uh, I am thrown in the chat said, uh, the Dothraki health care plan. They separate pharmacy <laughs> from the doctors. Ethical medicine practices amongst the Dothraki. Ah. Uh, and, and barren women in Munich. I mean, both, neither of these are people who are uh, going to be able to procreate themselves. Huh? Right. <laughs> yeah, so I guess you just have to wait on the next... Uh, well, I guess... I guess as far as the surgeons go, you can you can make a surgeon anytime you want, right? With an art, but uh, the, the, making the pharmacist would be a little more difficult. You'd have to figure that one out, and then just say, "Okay, you go over to that class now." <laughs> right? Yeah. Why are they daring women? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> um, one thing we haven't touched on though that I would like to before we we uh, wrap up this chapter is. When Mary Master is talking about her training and her past, she talks about how she had gone to uh, travel to a shy by the shadow in her youth to to learn, um, and had you know been taught by moon singers and Dothraki and uh, this maester from from Westeros. So yes. I think that's really interesting, both for the fact that she had traveled to this place, which is really a center of dark magic. Uh, and also that um, you know that she had exposure to these different people. Um, the fact that she had actually learned from Dothraki themselves, um, a healer from from their uh, background, and then also this this maester, this uh, Marwyn that she tells us about. Right. Yes. Um, anything else on this chapter? Okay. All right. Um, yeah, all of the Ashai stuff is very interesting. Um, I do want to talk more about that in the spoiler section, actually. Okay. Thank you. 
Um, so, uh, oh, with- oh, you know what? I do have one little thing here. I thought, just saw this in my note that I wanted to bring up. I haven't been able to bring this up in a long time. Um, it, when uh, Danny is, uh, when Drogo won't accept any help from his um, his riders to go into the uh, the temple, Danny says to him that he can lean on her because she is no man. That just reminded mm-hmm. me of of uh, Lord of the Rings, where uh, where you have Eowyn when she uh, kills the uh, the you know one of the the king. The, I can't think of his name now, but the head uh, uh, of those uh, the riders, the nine. Uh, that she says, "I am no man," and kills him. That just when I saw that, I said, "Oh, there's a little echo of George using some Tolkien. He's allowed <laughs> to get her, take her help because she is no man." Right. Yeah. Very good. I like that. Very good. With that, we'll go on to Tyrion 8. Tyrion and his clansmen are assigned to be the vanguard under the command of the mountain, Gregor Clegane, by his father and uncle. The night before the battle, Tyrion is brought to... The night before the battle, Tyrion has brought a camp follower named Shay for sexual services... The night is cut short as Rob's army arrives a day earlier than expected, and Tyrion fights in the battle. At the conclusion, it is determined that Rob's forces were not all present and were instead, or part of them instead, were on their way to River Run. Um, I, I guess the first thing for readers who are watching for the, or reading for the first time and only watch the television show... Uh, you didn't get cheated on the battle in this chapter. You know, no. you actually got to see the battle. It was one of those things where um, the show, obviously for budget reasons, um, conveniently came up with a way to knock Tyrion out before the battle even started and wake up after it was over. <laughs> uh, that was fantastic. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it, it cheats you. And now you get to figure out what happened and, and what kind of one one thing that I really find cool about this is the way that George lays out in very vivid language um, how strategy is employed and and what you know how battles are fought as opposed to um, you know I I know that filmmakers from Peter Jackson to to Dave and Dan and whatever, when they do show a battle, they do try to show at least one wide shot of so that you can get a, a kind of a lay of the land and how the forces are working against each other. Sometimes to Peter Jackson's uh, um, lack of credit, I will say a little bit too much. But uh, here it was really cool to see from Tyrion's perspective because not only did you see what was happening from outside it, but you also got into the thick of it as well. So... Um, it was very, it was very well described, and uh, for you TV show watchers who are just reading for the first time, I hope you enjoyed that because, um, like the Battle of Blackwater in the next book, goes out over several chapters. That's why it took up a whole episode, and why George, I think, was given the nod to write the chap- to write that episode himself in season two, uh, because it there is so much strategy and such involved. Um, so there you go. Uh, just wanted to say that right off the top. Uh, Stephanie, let's go to you for a point. Um, well, kind of going off of what Susan said at the beginning of the podcast, that these are important chapters, and oh boy, this is a doozy of a chapter. The Battle of the Green Fork. 
is what it's called, or it will be known as. Um, I, I like this chapter because it, it, it shows a different side of Tyrion. Uh, we haven't seen Tyrion in battle yet. And it also gives us a nice, not nice, but a very interesting scene with Tyrion and Tywin. Um, since we were discussing father-son relationships with John and Ned and then Gior Mormont, um, Tyrion thinks his dad's trying to kill him by putting him in the vanguard. <laughs> uh, do you guys think that was Tywin's strategy to have him killed? Well, he's got a very eloquent answer at the end of the chapter as to he why he did, why he did what he did. But uh, I kind of tend myself to think, and Susan, I'll let you chime in after this, but I myself, I, I tend to think that you know, it was one of those things where he just didn't care. It was about beating. It was about beating Rob, and if that yeah. costs him, if it costs him a son that he doesn't really care about, well, so be it. But otherwise, he's going to employ that plan. Now, that's exactly. I echo that exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, what else? What did What did you think, Stephanie? Me? Um, I, I I agree. I feel like. He wanted to win, and if Tyrion was killed, that was just, you know, a nice little bonus, a little bow on top of the package that he got. Well, i got to ask the question, and I'll ask, uh, I'll ask you, Susan, first, and Stephanie, if you want to answer, too, then feel free. But um, since Bubba isn't here, um, <laughs> Susan, do you think that Tyrion did measure up in this particular chapter? <laughs> Yeah, I did. You know, I think that, uh, you know, he uh, did pretty well for himself in battle, you know, better than I would have maybe thought that he could. In fact, uh, going back to my Tolkien reference, it's, uh, the show, it was more like how uh, Tolkien did uh, the uh, the Hobbit, where uh, Bilbo gets uh, knocked out at the beginning of the Battle of the Five Armies, wakes up afterwards. So, um, <laughs> I think uh, Tyrion did did pretty pretty well here, considering. I mean, he, he took out a couple of men, and uh, Bronn was off by on his own, so he didn't have him by his side helping him out all the time, like uh, I told him he was going to be. Very good. Say, so, hey, Stephanie, does Bilbo Lannister measure up? <laughs> I think he did. I Like I said, this is a side of Tyrion we really haven't seen before. Um, I think maybe he even he does measure up and I think maybe he even surprised himself a little bit with how much he, I don't, I don't want to say enjoyed, but got into the battle. Um, so yeah, evil uncle Tyrion measures up. <laughs> All right. Very good. Uh, Susan, what do you got for us? Now, Baba may not have agreed with that, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, uh, I do like how the chapter opens that, you know, Tyrion is joining his father, Kevin, and the rest of the kind of the, the main war council folks for dinner there. And Tywin is just throwing insult after insult at him. And Tyrion is returning them all with these jests of his. Um, but eventually gets fed up, well, especially after he learns that he's going to be in the vanguard. And, uh, you know, then he heads off to his uh, savages who... Uh, they're around, you know, they're roasting oak and, you know, 
they're roasting an ox and uh, want to uh, you know, have him join them. But uh, he goes off uh, after you get a little explanation of these four clans, the Black Ears, Stone Crows, Moon Brothers, and uh, Burnt Men not uh, willing to eat or anything. They have to have their separate camp set up. And he goes off and meets with Braun, and we get, I think, our first introduction here to Pod. Audrey yeah. Payne, uh, cousin to Fillion Payne, who Tyrion thinks his father is kind of uh, foisted on him as a, as a joke. And uh, we learn that Pod is a very shy boy. And we also meet Shay, who Braun has, has found for Tyrion. Yep, absolutely. Um, to, to introductions uh, of, of people. It, my impression upon rereading this after seeing the television show, and actually the first time I ever read this book was after the television show, I already got a... And, and there's nothing to indicate, I mean, really one way or the other about uh, Shay's heritage or anything like that in this particular chapter, but I immediately got a sense that there's a real difference between book Shay and TV show Shay, and not yes. just in, not just in ethnicity or anything like that, but just almost in attitude even. So uh, I just want to tell first-time book readers that you know, as you follow along in this story, and hopefully you'll keep reading, um, you will see some regard, some definite differences uh, in the way that the Shay Tyrion relationship unfolds. Um, as opposed to the way it did in the television show. Um, so I just want to let you know that there, there's some deviations in store for you um, that if you like the TV show version, um, you may not like in the books, um, or vice versa. I know that some book readers didn't like the way Shay was portrayed on the television show. So I just wanted to say that. Um, going back to... Uh, Susan, your point about uh, the way that uh, Daddy is is dissing Son there, <laughs> I, I think for me, you know, the biggest insult that Tywin actually threw at Tyrion was just the fact that Gregor Clegane was going to be leading the van. You know, I have no trust in your leadership ability, Tyrion. To me. And that wasn't even something that was really spoken out loud. It's just one of those things that, you know, Tyrion was really infuriated. It was the one thing I think that really got to Tyrion in that whole conversation because the rest he just was, you know, it's like, well, that's bad, right? It was the, like I, the last draw that made him say, okay, I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, what else we got on this chapter, guys? Well, one more thing with Shay, I just wanted to mention that I believe this is, this is our first introduction to Shay here. We also get her line, "My giant of Lannister," to him. Yes, she repeated and uh, and a important uh, point for later. Yes, absolutely. The little well, monkey that grows big. And also speaking on Shay. Um, I wanted. I feel like Shoshe um is almost more likable than Bookshay. At least, I mean, we've only had a very brief introduction to her at this point. But I feel like she, for first-time readers, 
they might be a little put off by her. Mm-hmm. I, I would her agree with that. Annoying. I found her annoying in the show, but at least she was likable, I think, to a point. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't know, Susan, how do you feel about that? either Shay. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, I think the thing is that, you know, they did portray the relationship quite differently in the show. I found her annoying in the show as well. Uh, I just didn't like her whole attitude and demeanor. But obviously in the show, they were supposed to be portraying that she really did care about Tyrion. And I think in the book, it's pretty obvious that, that she doesn't. So, right. you know, it, but I don't really care for the character either way. Gotcha. Fair enough. What else we got on this chapter, guys? Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about Tywin's uh, battle strategy here that, you know, he leads from the back. He gets up on this, you know, high hill where he can see the entire uh, battlefield and, you know, can command where things need to be going. And I'd also like to just uh, read this description of his armor because it's just so incredible. Uh, you know, and Tyrion, who does have armor made for him at home, is having to find these, you know, mismatched bits to, to fit him right here. And here Tywin, it says uh, that his armor put son Jamie's gilded suit to shame. His great cloak was sewn from countless layers of soft gold, so heavy that it barely stirred even when he charged, so large that it drapes Great covered most of his stallion's hindquarters when he took the saddle. No ordinary clasp would suffice for such a weight, so the great cloak was held in place by a matched pair of miniature lionesses crouching on his shoulders as if poised to spring. Their mate, a male, with a magnificent mane, reclined the top Lord Tyrion's great helm, one paw raking the air as he rode, as he roared. I mean, can you imagine this thing? It's just, I mean, it goes on and on describes it a lot more, but uh, <laughs> he must look uh, amazing. You would think that would make him an easy target for archers. Not that it would do much good with all that armor, but <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. You know, I I mean, let me ask you, you said he, he leads from behind, but doesn't a good general look over the battlefield and be able to direct? I mean, is that what gives Tywin his advantage? Yeah, that's what that's what I'm saying. I think you okay. know, but what I'm saying is he he's on the high ground. He's looking over and commanding and and directing what needs to happen. Right, right. I I just I I felt a sense of implication there that he was a coward. Is what I was getting from you. That maybe I misread that. Um, no, no. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, it's you know obviously it's a different style, and I don't think you know I'm sure that Tywin in uh you know he's I'm sure had his share of battles and uh, has uh, has distinguished himself to where you know in fighting uh, style. But I think that in terms of being able to uh, direct a, an entire army, this is just uh, I would think this would be the better way to do it than being in the in the mix. I mean, I know that they they do talk about that that, that can be inspiring for men to have the, their leader in the midst with them, but I would think that when you do that, that you can't really, you know, you're, you're going to take a decision to be doing it one way or the other, and you can't uh, direct everything that's going on if you're down there fighting. Right. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, what do you got for us, Stephanie? 
I feel like the Lannisters in this battle, or the Starks, I mean, I'm sorry, the Starks are pretty outnumbered. Or is their cavalry just outnumbered that they didn't have any cavalry then? Because they're led by Roose Bolton. And aren't those, don't they have just such lesser numbers than the Lannisters? Well, see, I actually got the impression reading this this time that, um, I mean, the way Tyrion looked at it, he he was, I thought there was a time when he thought there's so many of them. Um, and maybe that was just because of the position he was at. Um, but I, the way the TV show interpreted it was that it was a much smaller force for sure. Um, right. Yeah. That was a completely different, I think, scenario, the way the TV show set it up. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure if there was, uh, you know, if there was that much, I, I I'm sure it was a smaller force. I mean, Tywin's got what, 20,000 there or something like that. Yeah. I mean, what was the count that Rob had even leaving towards the Frey Towers? It was like 18,000, right? That's what I was say. I think he had So if 18. he split his force, he had to have significantly less going down to the Green Fort, for sure. Right, and obviously we know that the Starks lose this battle, but my point, I was kind of directing us, I feel like this is almost like a, for lack of a better term, almost like a suicide mission, because it just seemed the way the Lannisters were positioned and with how many people they had. And Bolton didn't really seem to have much of a battle plan from what we can infer and what we know. Um, But maybe I'm wrong because sometimes these battles get me a little mixed up. But what do you guys think? Do you think this was just like, just, I, I feel like it was just kind of silly for Roost to be marching towards them like this. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and I think it was. I think I think you're exactly right. This this was the distraction because the the actual target is River Run. Right. Um. So Rob would commit a smaller force, and he and he would send these guys head on to you know, just to occupy the attention of Tywin's massive force for long enough for Rob to be able to achieve what he needs to achieve. And I think that that was implied in the show as well because right. once Lannister is brought to Rob uh, at, at, uh, I don't know what was that episode 9, episode 10 um, he, he basically yeah. says a great deal of men died uh, to, to, to so that we could get this guy you know this war is far, far, far from over whatever uh, made this big speech with great Ramin Javadi music behind it um, Anyway, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think that, that, that essentially, um, you know, he sent Roos down there on a suicide mention, and isn't it funny that Roos is the one who escapes? Mm-hmm. Yes, and our friend Iontrone in the, in the chat room says Roos Bolton's strategy of putting the people he wanted to get rid of and die in the mix, and he was kind of holding back his own men. So Roos had a strategy, but it wasn't a... It wasn't a strategy to help Rob stay in in the battle any longer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's why I think when we were talking about this, I think maybe last week we were discussing whether Ruth was the better uh, pick for Rob to to take rather than, you know, to have lead this rather than uh, the Umber. Um, And I was saying, well, it kind of depends on the strategy that he, and and that's what I was getting at is, you know, here we have uh, uh, Lord Horn. Hornwood is dead. Yeah, let, let's and, save all that for right. sports because none of that's in the okay. show. Okay. Yeah. 
That's All why right. I was trying to avoid that. But okay. Um, anything else? Well, going along the Bolton line, this might be a complete leap and a complete uh, crackpot, but is this his first showing of treachery? He's obviously, quote, unquote, still on the Stark side, but he's not, like Matt said, he's not really helping Rob out by, you know, holding back his own men and just sending the ones he wants to get killed to get killed. Um, is this a foreshadowing? Is this a maybe just a precursor? What do you guys think? Or is this nothing? Is this just a coincidence? <laughs> well, if you're asking me if I think that there's any communication between Bruce Bolton and Tywin this early on, I say no. Okay. Yeah, um, I, agree. I think so, Yeah, I don't think that really happens until... I don't even I don't even know. I think if you, television show-wise, it's, it's, it's kind of... To me, I think the dividing point, you could say, is where... Bruce wants to, to, to flay some men to get information out of him, and, and Rob refuses. Um, right. And, and to me, the, 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 maybe the letter-writing campaign begins uh, somewhere in, in the course of book two uh, of, uh, of A Clash of Kings as well. Um, but that, that's where I pinpoint it to. Yeah, and I think, you know, the benefit of hindsight to look back and be like, oh, well, look at what Bolton did here at this battle. I, I, I agree. I don't think that he was, you know, in cahoots with the Lannisters and the Freys at this point at all. But it's kind of a, an interesting little pin to drop in there. And you can go back and be like, oh, well, was, you know, Bolton always planning this? And this could be just kind of one of those things that sticks out. That's like, oh, maybe, maybe yeah. something's off. <laughs> well, I, I don't think when you, when you look at the people who are captured, I don't think there's any way to doubt that even if Roos isn't working against Rob in terms of whether he's against Tywin or not, right. Roos is working for himself. He's, yes. trying, right. yeah. he's, trying, he's trying to gain more power in the North for himself, regardless of whether he's going to have to call Rob King uh, right. at the end of it all or not. Right. So there is treachery involved in in terms of self-ambition. I just don't think right. there's treachery involved in terms of uh, any kind of switching sides. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Agreed. Uh, what do we got on uh, this chapter? Anything else? I think I'm done. I just have a, a small what if. Um, uh oh. Well, well, a couple what ifs. One. The big one would be, okay, well, Tyrion's in the vanguard. What if he died? Well, he obviously wouldn't go be Hand of the King later. We wouldn't have any of his chapters, so that would kind of just be almost like a, you know, just a dead end. Like, we wouldn't have much, we wouldn't have any Tyrion story. Um, But what if Tywin lost this battle by some crazy chance? I don't know how he would lose. It seems very unlikely that he could lose this battle. But, you know, knowing what we know from the next chapter, it could be really um, devastating. Well, I think that that would have definitely changed the course of the whole war, for sure. I think so, yeah. But even with this small force, 
giving Tyrion fits for a while, and he sees that Rob is a strategist coming after this. We even see in the television show. I think when you look at Tywin's strategy, his own personal war strategy from here on out, hit, fall back, hit, fall back, hit, fall back, hit, fall back. You know, the very mm-hmm. thing that Rob, like in season three, is talking about how, you know, I've defeated him on every battlefield, but yet I can't win this war because he's stringing exactly. me out all over the place. You know, I, I think that this battle changes Tywin's strategy towards Rob right here. I, I do think that that happens. Um, right. But if, if Rob, if Bruce Bolton would have committed full forces or if he would have had more men or, or whatever, if the stratagem had been different and they'd all gone down there and, and defeated Tywin's force handily, um, then I say the War of the Five Kings never really begins until Stannis right. manages to take over King's Landing and then tells Rob that he has to come back into the into the fold, you know, and not be a king of the north. I agree. It would have been, yeah, it would have been done, though. Do you had another one? Nope, just those were it. <laughs> All right. Susan, anything else? Nope, uh, I'm fine. I'm ready to ready to head on to the Whispering Woods. Yeah, you can yeah. tell that Stephanie was trying to, trying desperately to just uh, come up with stuff in order to keep from getting to Catlin 10. Don't be surprised, Matt. You will be surprised. Uh-oh. Catlin 10. Catlin witnesses the planning and execution of the battle at the Whispering Wood. The end result is that part of Jamie Lannister's force at River Run is defeated, and Jamie himself and some of his bannermen are taken captive. Here's my first question, and it can be for a reader or a TV show watcher, uh, since it isn't really in the TV show, but it's one of those things that we just love to ask. And you've probably heard book readers complain that there isn't enough direwolf stuff in the television show. <laughs> Was there more than one wolf? That Catelyn asks. Is it possible that Nymeria was there, guys? Yes. Wow, that's a good catch. You know what? I never know. I know. I didn't. I didn't uh, think about that. But you're. I'm sure you're right. I think that Nymeria was there for sure. Yep. Uh, I, what do we I got? I agree. Matt, I'm going to say this. This is um, an unprecedented thing. I enjoyed this Catlin chapter. I really did. <laughs> why? It is. Why? Yes. I why did you why. enjoy this Catlin chapter and no other one? Well, I, first of all, I like seeing the preparations of the battle and also seeing the battle from, you know, an outside perspective, one that's not in the battle. But also, it's not just an outside perspective, but it's a woman's perspective. And, you know, Catelyn might be a lot of things, but she knows about this stuff. So it's an informed perspective that we get to see this battle from. And I found that very interesting. All right. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, What do you got, Susan? Uh, I mean, I'm also not a a huge Catelyn fan. I probably uh, am not quite as harsh on her as Stephanie, but... um... But she's not one of my favorite POVs. But I agree that this is this is probably you know, this would rate among my top Catlin chapters. I like the the whole atmosphere and uh, 
uh, I just think it's a a very interesting chapter in terms of her perspective on it, what she's seen, how she sees, uh, you know, Jamie as he rides by, how she hears the the um, bird calls and recognizes them for signals, and then uh, um, uh, Lady Mormont's horn and so forth, and the wolves. Uh, now, now I'll think about my Myria being there. Uh, but, um, yeah, so I, I really like just the whole atmosphere that it kind of lays out. And uh, as she's reminiscing on things as well, uh, you have the line, uh, watch for me, little cat, which uh, we hear repeated later on as well when she's thinking about her father. Over the years, would say that to her and just thinking about all the other people that she's had to wait on as they've gone to battle. And she's had to wait and be fearful for, for those that she loves. Yeah. Um, and it, it's all kind of, you know, just the thoughts of, of her father and everything. I love how it kind of foreshadows. I mean, and they are trying to, to reestablish themselves at River Run, trying to um, lift Jamie's siege from River Run. Um, it all points to the fact that, you know, it, it, the, in the television show, we don't really get to River Run uh, until much later than we get in the books. Um, in the books, um, there's a lot that's going to happen at River Run that happens in other places on the television show. So I just thought I'd preface that for new readers. Uh, so that's why I say that all of this foreshadowing, uh, or there's some foreshadowing about the fact that they are there at River Run or, or trying to see uh, take River Run back, and she's thinking of her father. So I just thought I'd yeah. point that out. Um, Stephanie, what do you got so um, last week, I know I wasn't here, but um, we had someone write in about who who thought Cersei and Cat were the same, or they they compared them very similarly. Um, and I I feel like in this chapter is a great example why they are not the same. Um, Catelyn is very contemplative. Um, you know, she's thinking about her dad. She's watching this battle. She's analyzing it pretty correctly. She's thoughtful in her nature and in what she says and does. Um, and I feel like if we were having this perspective from Cersei, it wouldn't be very contemplative. It would be not what what she's actually seeing. It's what she's just kind of thinking about and in kind of manic in her own mind. Um, but I, I, I just wanted to point that out, that I feel like they're different, and this is a great example of why. I feel like Cersei's just more, I think you said last week, Matt, that what Catelyn sees in her point of view, other people can corroborate that, but what Cersei sees and believes in her point of view, that's just made up because she's delusional. Right. And I think this is a great example that, you know, Catelyn has some thoughtfulness to her that Cersei really doesn't. Well, I can tell you exactly what Cersei's POV in this would be. It would be, why am I back here in the battle? I can fight a battle like any other man. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say something just like that, Matt. I would have done better than this. I could do better than Rob. Right. That that is such a wrong decision. That that this will never work. Why not (laughs) let me take command? (laughs) Exactly. 
Exactly. Which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. I mean, if 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 she was capable of that, then uh, no problem with her having that. It's just I haven't ever seen Cersei be capable of that personally. Correct. Uh, based exactly. on her failures. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm sorry. I digressed. Uh, what else we got on this chapter, guys? Well, we hear that um, uh, not only, I mean, we knew, you know, that the phrase had, had joined by the end of last chapter, but we also have now that the Malisters have come down. So Rob's forces have been increasing significantly, but still Jamie has them three to one, we hear. So, you know, Rob's pretty outnumbered at this point. How many men do the Lannisters have? I mean, it seems like they've just pulled everybody from everywhere as compared to, you know, Rob's getting all these people from the north. The north must be a lot more sparsely populated than than the west, right? Is that what we're to take? Oh, I would imagine so, yeah. Even though it's a lot larger, I mean, certainly less people are going to want to live in, in that kind of climate. Yeah, so it's like the Lannisters are California and... Uh, the Starks are Alaska. Right. right. Gotcha. Because <laughs> it is, it's, it's like, you know, Rob keeps facing these overwhelming odds, and, and when he's in command, then, then he typically wins. But uh, it just, it, it's amazing the depth of the population. It, it just, because when I think of Westeros, I think of, you know, a few big holdfasts, and uh, villages kind of around those. And I don't think of any of the place being all that densely populated, but I guess there are the cities like in the West, like Lannisport, right? That's one of them. Yeah. Um, I don't know all of the city. I, I don't know my Westeros geography nearly as well as I should, folks. I apologize for that. Um, plus, I, the Westerlands, uh, maybe there's better farming and such, so or even better. Well, well, I guess when you think of the Westerlands, you think more so of minerals. So there's probably a lot more prospectors and that kind of thing as well. Um, you have a lot more minerals, but you also would have good farming too. You know, yeah. I mean, even though the reach is more known to be like the breadbasket of, of Westeros, I would think that that uh, the Westerlands would uh, have a, a decent amount of farming. Uh, and be more productive than the North in that perspective. Right. Okay. Very good. I, I think in this chapter is the first time that we hear that they're calling uh, Rob the young wolf. And uh, he has um, his uh, all these people who are, as they're saying, clamoring for the honor of riding with him. And so, um, you know, he's got quite a group of of uh, dedicated people who are are really uh, you know showing how much they want to be be out there on the front line with him, and including this uh, Daisy Mormont, Lady Mage's oldest daughter, and that uh, some of the uh, men were complaining about her being allowed that honor, uh, but Catelyn's telling them, you know, this isn't about your honor. This is about keeping keeping uh, Rob safe. And if uh, and Daisy's in a better position to do that than some other people, then she should be the one who's allowed to. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, I love that too. And I also just I, when it when it, her observations of Rob in general about you know how he would tell a joke to one guy, put his hand on the shoulder of another guy, and he's doing all of these things that's really winning their loyalty. And you think, wow, that's just great for a sixteen-year-old kid. And then you know 
the time that he actually talks to Cat, it, 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 and even in I think in the prior Catlin chapter, you know, everything's about well, Dad always told me to do this. Dad always told me yeah. to talk to each guy individually. Dad, are, you know, so it's it's really not so much that or what I'm I guess what I'm trying to say is we shouldn't character assassinate Ned quite as much as we do <laughs> because because Rob is following all of his father's advice and winning the loyalties of these men Ned knew a thing or two about all of that right and that's probably why he was very popular in the north I just want to say I was wrong. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> say how they captured several of his of his key guys as sure. well that were riding with him because uh, right. I would imagine that a lot of the key guys just like the key guys that want to ride with Rob or there's probably key guys that want to ride with Jamie right and sure. and so uh, 
that probably weakens the siege on River Run greatly. And if that doesn't happen, even if some of these other guys are taken, um, I don't think Jamie early on in the story gets enough credit for being as smart militarily as, as he is, right? And right. especially, I mean, I can definitely talk about more about this in, in the spoiler section, which I think I probably should save it for, but... Um, especially in in terms of the in terms of just the fact that he could rally i, I mean he, if they're outnumbered with just Jamie's force here if Rob's men are imagine if he calls all of the the places that are sieging against Rob's force right just away i mean i think Rob is defeated hands down mm-hmm. yeah Which, which again, that that changes the course of the war the the other way. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's very important uh, here to note that in capturing uh, Jamie, that uh, he uh, took out two of Clarstark's sons and Daryl Hornwood. Yes, and that that yeah. even. Uh, in season two, we see Car Stark uh, being very angry that Rob killed some of his sons, and and we know where that ends up in season three, right? Because Car Stark uh, sends a group of men in to kill a couple of little Lannister boys. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's this. <laughs> who would have thought that picking Jamie uh, or battling Jamie would be the beginning of the end for poor Rob? I know. Uh. Yeah. Anything else, guys? That's all I have for here. That's all I have. All right. Well, let's rate these chapters uh, from our, you know, in order of our favorite from, yeah, in what order you wish, from least favorite to favorite or favorite to least favorite. Why don't we start with you, Susan? Oh, dear. Oh, I like all these chapters. Um I know the two of you were saying that you didn't think so much happened in the John chapter, but I really like it. I enjoyed that, uh, both his, his getting Longclaw and Master Eamon and that whole conversation and getting a little bit of his history. Uh, so I'm actually going to put that first. And um, then I'm going to go with um, Catelyn, Whispering Woods. I, I just love this battle and uh, all the... the uh, things that she's observing while this is going on, her, her thought back to history as well as, as the present, and then Tyrion and Daenerys last. All right. How about you, Stephanie? Well, I rated them in the exact opposite order in which we read them. Um, <laughs> for the first time ever, and probably the last time, I have Catelyn ranked first. Whoa, dun, dun, dun. Wait, let's just uh, pause on that for just a second. Just uh, pause on that. Catelyn first. Let that sink Catelyn in, people. Catelyn first. Number let, one. Let that sink in. Okay, now go. Numero uno. Uh, then I have Tyrion. I, I liked the battle. Those are pretty interesting. Um, three, Danny, And then I do have John last. Just it wasn't as exciting as the others. Yeah, uh, okay, very good. And for me... Uh, I am actually going to go Catelyn first. Uh, I am going to go 
I think Danny second because to me it's like one of the more exciting chapters uh, of of the Danny chapters that just happened for me in in the course of this read. Not because Danny chapters aren't interesting. It's just that um, a lot of it uh, that I gleaned from the TV show or from the first read, it it just I don't find as much surprising. uh, Although there are a couple of things in the spoilers that we'll talk about. Uh, Then I'm going to go John. And again, pretty much for the same reasons. It's not that it isn't an interesting read. It's just that um, a lot of this stuff, other than maybe my little note about the, the decline of the Night's Watch, I pretty much picked up um, either from the television show or from my first read. And uh, then in honor of Bubba, I'm going to go uh, Tyrion last. Uh, <laughs> because I'm sure that Bubba would have wished that the horse would have fallen on him instead of on the guy's leg. And we don't have any feedback, uh, and not, at least not in the spoiler kind of feedback. We do have uh, one, or spoiler-free feedback. We do have one spoiler email that we'll get to. Uh, but next week's chapters will be Daenerys 8, Arya 5. Oh, Arya 5. Guys, that's going to be a bad one for y'all. Uh, Brand 7 and Sansa 6. And uh, you can find all of the chapters currently as we release these podcasts in the Game of Thrones reread tab at podcastwinterfell.com. I want to thank my guests for joining me once again. Um, Stephanie, thank you so much for making it back this week. And I uh, hope you're feeling much better. And how can people talk to you about A Song of Ice and Fire or the upcoming season of Game of Thrones if they wish? Oh, yes. Thanks, Matt, and thanks, as always, for hosting us on the wonderful podcast, Winterfell. Um, my Twitter is smpersephone. That's S-M-P-E-R-S-E-Phone. Excellent. All right. And, Susan, thank you once again. And how can people talk to you about you're, – you're part of all of our theory casts and all of that stuff, so uh, people can talk to you about those as well. How can they reach you out there on the Internet so that they can talk to you about A Song of Ice and Fire or Game of Thrones? Sure, and thank you, Matt. It's always it's always a great honor and a lot of fun to come on here. And the best way to get in touch with me is on Twitter at uh, Black Eyed Lily. At Black Eyed Lily, and here is at W Axel Foley to tell you how to contact me. We'll see you next time. This is the spoiler section. You know what that means? It means you might have want to have read all five books before you listen to this part. Otherwise, you might be mad if we spoil you, and we're not going to care because you're the one that's responsible for stopping the podcast at this point. You've been warned. Here we go. I have an email, actually, from Megan. Um, And this is an email that I actually was going to hold off until we got to the chapter, Um, but since there is still kind of spoilery stuff in it, uh, just actually, it's just one sentence that's spoilery, but I feel like it, it, it plays a big role in in, in her point. So uh, I, I I felt like we needed to maybe save this for the spoiler sections. Again, Megan, thank you so much uh, for sending this email. It says, hi, Podcast Winterfell. I'm glad to have you all back. I actually ended up finishing my reread of Game of Thrones when the podcast went on hiatus. So this is a bit of a head of the podcast. Feel free to save it until you reach that point or read it in a theory cast, whatever fits best. I'm not sure if it would be considered a theory or just an idea about Daenerys. It refers to the line Miriam Asdur says towards the end of the book, 
When the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, said Mary Mazdor, when the seas go dry and the mountains blow in the wind like leaves, when your womb quickens and you bear a living child, then he will return and not before. Some people feel that this is a prophecy or at least some sort of literary literary foreshadowing. My idea is that something my idea is something along this line, however. I believe that this line might actually be foreshadowing that Daenerys will die by the end of the series. Many people feel that the line the sun sets in the east is a reference to Quentin Martell. The dry sea may be a reference to the Dothraki Sea, and the mountains that blow in the winds may be something we haven't encountered yet. Um, I have seen many people theorizing that this means Danny will be able to have a child after these events. However, I feel that these events, including Danny bearing a living child, are the things that must happen before she can meet Drogo again. However, Drogo will not return to her. She will be reunited with him in death. I feel this interpretation makes more sense as all these events, including bearing a child, are prefaced when are prefaced within indicating that this must happen before she is reunited with Drogo. I don't have much support for this. It's just a different way of looking at Mary Mazdor's prophecy. It actually makes me a little sad because Daenerys is one of my favorites, and I don't want her to die, but perhaps she would be happier in the Nightlands with her moon and stars, especially after all the carnage that is sure to come before the conclusion of the series. Let me know what you think, and thanks as always, Megan. All right, Megan, thank you for the email. Um, You dark, dark person, you. Uh, Although, uh, actually, I I think that her interpretation uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I'm not really familiar with, you know, what this kind of most popular interpretation of it is. I I understand, you know, I think by the end of book five, we've even seen kind of evidence with the blood and everything that she, she may, you know, be having her moon blood again, to put it nicely. And, and, uh, that the possibility of her having another child is uh, very real. Uh, I have no idea what mountains blow in the wind like leaves is, though. I mean, could that be uh, volcanic stuff? Is it possible that that could be, you know, maybe there'll be some great volcanoes go off or something somewhere? Um, there's all kinds of things that that could be interpreted to. Um, but I don't know. How do you feel? Could this be pointing to her being reunited with Drogo in death rather than anything else? What is the standard interpretation, and what is your interpretation, Susan? <laughs> uh, well, uh, standard interpretation. I think you know she she outlined some of it there in terms of uh, uh, Quentin coming, uh, you know, rising in the east and setting in the west. That was, was it the other way around? Rising in the west, setting in the east. Um, with the sun, and then the Dothraki Sea turning brown. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, really, the only thing I can think mountain-wise is, of course, we've got the character referred to as the mountain. Um, but, you know, um, I agree that a lot of people have brought up that a number of these things could be interpreted to have happened, and that that might be a sign that she is going to be fertile and be able to become pregnant. However, I do think that Aiken has made a good point. I think that it's, uh, it could 
just as likely be interpreted the way that she's seeing it. So uh, I like that. That's a new way of, of thinking about it that I hadn't uh, had thought of myself, hadn't heard before. So, uh, you know, kudos to her for coming up with that. Thank you, Megan Grim Reaper. What do you think, Susan? Stephanie? I'm sorry, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like I like Megan's idea. Uh, like you guys, I I haven't really thought I haven't thought about that. Um, our friend Iron Throne in the chapter or in the chat room says a mountain blowing in the wind could be Gregor Clegane's magic gets undone and he evaporates. So that's another thing that could happen. Um, wow. But I'd in like the. <laughs> In the sense that, like, she'll be reunited with Drogo, I'm not sure if I want to go with that part. That seems kind of a, and I, I don't mean this in disrespect to Megan, but that seems kind of lame for her to just end up with, for her to go back and end up with Drogo. Um, but I, I I like the rest of it and how she might be able to have another child. And, you know, there's so many different ways to interpret this prophecy, and that's, that's definitely one that I haven't heard before. So, so great yeah. originality. How about this for a crackpot? Danny has Jorah's baby. Oh. <laughs> oh, I knew I'd get some groans out of that one. Yay! Jorah the Purr finally gets his way. He's too old. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Jorah. Yeah. <laughs> We pick on Jorah. It's kind of become the cliche of this podcast is to pick uh, on Jorah. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's move on to some spoiler stuff. Um, and, and you alluded to this a little bit in the uh, in the uh, chapter in the John chapter season. But obviously, we think the Raven is being warged into by probably most likely by Blood Raven. But, uh-huh. The other thing that I found really interesting in this chapter was the way that George made sure to differentiate Crow and Raven. Now, the television show, I think, has called Blood Raven, the, who we, we assume is Blood Raven, the three-eyed Raven this whole time. Um, but in the books, he's the three-eyed Crow, right? Um, and so to me... Uh, Obviously, the whole idea of just thinking about Crow with Blood Raven points to his heritage, to, points to his past as as a member of the Night's Watch, because that's what, what the Wildlings refer to them as, as is pointed right. out in this chapter. Um, so I, I love that there's just little hints of things. Again, as, as our friend Bubba likes to say, just do the math, and sometimes – you know, my algebraic equations uh, make no sense whatsoever and <laughs> make call me crazy for even just pointing this out. But I, I just think that the whole crow thing here, and you think about it in the context of, of the fact that uh, he's called the three-eyed crow in the books. Um, and, of course, we do find out through supplementary material and even through, uh, I think, of Feast for Crows that Blood Raven did serve as, as a member of the Night's Watch. Um, but then there's the name himself itself, you know, Blood Raven and 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 Eamon talking about the fact that ravens uh, prefer blood, you know, and, and how kind of sinister that whole name of Blood Raven becomes when you think about it. Um, so just a lots of meandering, scattered thoughts regarding just one little line of dialogue from Maester Eamon, which I'm, I'm sorry, I'll shut up now. What else have we got on Jeff? 
I think that there's also further significance to his burnt hand. Uh, and, you know, the symbolism of it. And frankly, I tried to do a little bit of research and didn't get very far on this. Um, but, you know, as far as, you know, and, and we did talk about that his hand really doesn't really work as well as it did before ever. And he's always, you know, stretching it and everything. That just, you know, kind of some of the symbolism of that burnt hand. Uh, you know, frankly, I don't have a lot of details for it, other than I know that, you know, in some of the things that I've been reading recently where they're they're talking about a lot of the Azora High uh, symbolism that George has kind of gone through the whole narrative with, that a lot of it has to do with things that are burnt and bloody and, again, the fire of blood, you know, through everything. So I just think that, um, you know, that, that there is something, some significance there that um, people just need to keep their eye on. That's probably not all I have to say about it. Well, that's great. That's great. Uh, and you and I probably talked about this during our Feast Dance Tandem Read too, Susan, but uh, because John does get Longclaw here, I mean, have I can't remember what our discussions were to, to great detail, but did were you one that, like me, kind of pondered that perhaps Longclaw could be Lightbringer uh, if plunged into, say, Melisandre as Anissa Nisa? <laughs> Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's. I guess it, it is a possibility. It is a possibility. Yeah. Um, so there we go with with our wild, crazy stuff. Well, actually, I don't think it's that crazy myself personally, but uh, some people might call me crazy for saying it. I hope they don't call you crazy for saying it, Susan, I, I, or for collaborating with me. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, what else we got on the John chapter? I don't have anything. You don't have anything? Susan, anything else? I, I don't. Uh-uh. All right. Well, then let's move on to Danny. And now is the time when we want to talk about a shy. And Marwin, 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 glass candle, Marwin. Yay, Marwin. Yes. <laughs> uh, because he is tied with, uh, he is tied with, uh, what's, what's the maester's name that, that brought Clegane back to life? I can't remember his name right now. Tyburn. Tyburn, the, the half maester, the not quite a maester. <laughs> The the, the 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 shunned Maester, Kyburn. Um, right. He had associations with Marwen as well, and and that whole description of the anatomy thing, you know, sounds very Kyburn esque, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, plus, you mix it with all of these dark arts stuff that that we typically associate with a shy. Um, thinking about this now, or maybe when you read, when you started to hear more about Marwen in, in in from Kyburn or from uh in in book four with Sam uh when they get to Old Town. Um does Marwin seem more sinister to you as you read along or did he seem because now he's off to see Danny, right? He or that's where he thinks he's going. He's he's gonna go see Danny. Uh and and it seemed like Kate was even giving I could. I still can't tell with Kate if she was telling uh, Danny that she, that's how she was communicating, or if she was warning Danny about Marwin by saying glass candles are burning. Um, but what is your perception of Marwin now? Actually, let me go to you first, Stephanie. What is your perception of Marwin these days? Well, I am going to read a passage from the wiki of Ice and Fire about Marwin and. This is what it says, the first sentence. 
People say that Marwin keeps the company of whores and hedge wizards, talks with hairy Ebenese and pitch black summer islanders in their own tongues, and sacrifices to queer gods at the Little Sailor's Temple down by Old Town's Wharves. So that's our first impression of Marwin if you don't know him. <laughs> Wiki him. Um, he's a strange he's a strange guy. And I do think he's sinister, not because of whores, but um I'd like to know what a hedge wizard is. That sounds intriguing. Like a hedge knight? Just a wizard that goes so. around from place to place? I guess so. That makes him even more interesting. And then he's obviously teaching um, these Lebanese, the sheep people. And we all know that Miri Mazdur basically, I, I don't if we want to say kills Danny's baby and everything, but he's into some pretty, some pretty dark stuff. How about you, Susan? A- any other impressions about Marwin or... Impressions about him. I mean, I, I find him kind of interesting in the fact that, you know, when it comes to the Citadel, that they're so anti-magic, but yet he is um, a studier of it and someone who has some concerns about how the Citadel might treat people that uh, could have any association with it. Um, however, I do think that he definitely has some sinister uh, connotations. And I tell you what, if uh, you have had any, if anyone has uh, looked at the part about a shy uh, in the world book. One, I mean, I always found the references to it in the story to be interesting and wanted to know more about it. But boy, when you read that section about it in there, yeah, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with that place. I mean, it just sounds <laughs> terrible. Absolutely the worst place you could imagine. So, yeah. and the people that live there or go there to study and so forth are just like the, you know, the worst of the worst in terms of, you know, dabblers and dark arts and, and things of that nature. So, you know, this is someone who had, you know, spent some time there along with uh, Mary Mazdor. Um, so both of those characters, I think, uh, you know, have certainly uh, exposed themselves to some pretty, some pretty uh, black things. Is it possible that Marwin is even going to be able to intersect with Danny at certain, at some point? I mean, it, it just seems with everything that's going on with Danny right now, by the end of book five, and Marwin basically just taken off um, at the end of book four. I don't even see him being able to connect with her, just no. for geography's sake. Although I guess it's it's possible if Danny does come back. Um, then, yeah. then something could happen that way, but it just feels um, it, it it feels weird to me that all of a sudden this thrust of the story is is becomes very prominent at the end of book four, um, and then doesn't pay off in any way, shape, or form in book five at all. Um, it's just so many things for George to tie up. I was going to say, wouldn't Mar- Marwin heading to Marine that would complicate the Miranese not more, which is something we don't need. <laughs> Maybe that helps. She will, I think she will come back to uh, Marine for, uh, you know, at some point before she heads forward. And um, I think both Marwin and uh, 
Macoro are two people that she's going to encounter and how involved they will become with her and her cause. We'll have to wait and see, but, uh, you know, they're both people, you know, one coming from the, uh, from her lore and then uh, Marwin here with the maester background and his uh, knowledge in magic. It, uh, you know, they, they both have, could bring her knowledge um, and whether they will be good influence, you know, their influences will be things that will help her or hinder her or what, we'll have to see. Mm, good points. Good points. Uh, anyway, uh, I spewed off enough. What, what else we got on Danny? That's all, that's all I yeah. had on Danny was Marwin. <laughs> Susan, anything else? So um, when we come to the end of these four chapters, I do have a spoiler thing from last week that I need to follow up on. So that's oh, it. Oh, excellent. Make sure I uh, that. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Um, Tyrion then, uh, and we kind of addressed this a little bit in the main part of the podcast, um, but, uh, well, we addressed him sacrificing men probably for his own ambition, but the one that comes most to mind, of course, is Hornwood. Um and it seems like that he, you know, Hornwood, out of all these guys that are taken captive or whatever, uh, Hornwood is the one who dies, and that's the one who, uh, whose lands get acted on by, uh, by Roos's bastard son, right? Mm. Yes. 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 Yeah. yeah, Lord Hornwood dies in this battle, and his son dies, Jamie kills his son. Now, that's right. Now, obviously, that isn't something that, that, Bruce have any influence over that part of it, but the fact is, they both, you know, the the current lord and his heir both died, leaving Lady Hornwood without, a, you know, a real protector there. So there's no heir to the to to the Hornwood lands at all, then. Right. Yeah, because it's Darren Horn, Hornwood was the one who died in the Whispering Wood, right? His son. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, that was fortuitous <laughs> for <laughs> for Roos for certain, um, and, and fortunately fortuitous, I, I guess. Um, anyway, the the fact that he so let's say okay, Roos manages to escape. I mean, and I'm just speculating here and fanficking in a way, but Roos manages to escape this battle. He finds out that Hornwood's dead. He then goes back to Rob, finds out that Hornwood's son is dead, mm-hmm. and then sends his son to harass Lady Hornwood. Yeah. Okay. That's that's a lot of speculative math, but that, I, I think that that works. <laughs> I don't know. Does two and two plus equal five there, guys? Is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that makes lots of sense. I mean, the fact that, you know, that then that... Uh, uh, Ramsey is captured as uh, Reek originally, uh, mm-hmm. while he and his while he and Reek are out hunting another uh, woman. I mean, I think that you know it, that comes afterwards. But um, but I think that uh, Bruce has plenty of time to have you know, decided that that's something that Ramsey could do, and uh, and he might not have met meant her to treat Lady Hornwood the manner in which he did, which is what led the other Northmen to come down on him. You know, maybe right. he just wanted uh, Ramsey to go and, you know, do what he could to secure her and, and take the land. And if, if he had acted a little bit more, uh, 
you know, like not such a crazy psycho, <laughs> that um, it would have been to their house's advantage. Yeah, any sense was, of civilization at all would have helped that. <laughs> right, right. As it was, Bruce had to be like apologizing for his son and all that. But uh, right, yeah, could have gone another way. Oh, very good. Very good. What else we got on the uh, on the Tyrion chapter, guys? Anything? Oh, Wireless Manderley um, is captured, right? He has a fate in the books, but I can't remember. Is he killed, or is he is he the one that is sent back to White Harbor? He's the one that gets sent back. He, he, okay. Because his brother, his brother dies at the Red Wedding. So he's okay. the one that, uh, he is a captive at Harrenhal for a while. Arya has some, uh, not necessarily contact, but he's mentioned in her chapters while she's there. Okay. Um, yeah. But... Yeah. The one thing I wanted to bring up again from the world book but related to this chapter with Tyrion with his, his men, um, and the different clansmen they're you know, they're so they don't want to have anything to do with each other or anything. There's a thing in the in the world book about the burnt men and you know, we know they have this crazy uh uh ritual. Yeah, ritual about having to burn something off. Well in the world book it talks about how this might come from the fact that um, in the Dance with Dragons, in that in that story, one of the um, uh, people with dragons was she she kind of like flew off with her dragon in the end. I won't go too much into the details of it, but was never seen again. Well, in the here, it sounds like she might have ended up in uh, the Vale, and the burnt men uh, had interaction with her, would send their son to her for her favors, and if they didn't get, like, burnt by her dragon, then that was a, a good time. So that would have been, like, their origin story. Ooh, that is interesting. Yeah, yeah she lived up in the mountains for years and was looked at as this witch woman with this dragon. That is interesting. Uh, I got to get it. We're going to cover We're going to cover a world of ice and fire chapter or bit by bit uh, eventually Ooh. at some point in this podcast. Uh, yeah. Depending on how quickly George writes, it may it may be coming sooner rather than later. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it's a big book. It would it would take a while. It is extensive. It is extensive. Uh, the world, yes. Anything else on Tyrion, guys? Nothing else. Uh, Catelyn, then. My only I thing was. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go on. That's all right, Steph. Go ahead. Okay. So when Catelyn's, you know, kind of in her own thoughts and she talks about, you know, she waited for her dad when he was off at war. Then she waited for Brandon Stark, but he didn't come back. So she married Ned. And then two weeks after they got married, he left. So she was waiting on him. And then she's waiting on Rob while he's, you know, fighting the battle. So there's this, like, theme almost of Catelyn waiting and just kind of biding her time, waiting for the men in her life to come back. Um, But I wanted to bring this up in the spoilers because I feel like Lady Stoneheart is also waiting. Um, She's obviously not the same person as Catelyn, but she's also waiting and waiting for her revenge. And I was... Wondering if you guys thought the same thing is—is is she waiting around? She's biding her time, waiting for this stuff to happen. 
Well, that's interesting because, I mean, I don't know. I know that the Grand Northern Conspiracy perceives Lady Stoneheart as being a lot more active, right, Susan? Right. Um, yeah, yeah, she's uh, planning and facilitating things instead of just waiting, I guess I would say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like maybe her involvement with what's going on in the neck um, and, uh, and the idea of a second red wedding and so forth. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think that's a, that's a good point in the fact that, um, Lady Stoneheart will be as equally uneasy in terms of anticipating her objective as Catelyn is uneasy about, you know, the fact that her father wouldn't come back exactly when, you know, so it's, is there a degree of, I mean, that could be interpreted, I guess, as a degree of, of slight impatience, impatient behavior as right. well. Um, so I would imagine that Lady Stoneheart would have that same kind of objective. It, 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 perhaps that's even something you could allude to in the fact that she sent Brienne on, on whatever hell of a quest Miss Brienne's Betty. on. I don't know. Well, and I like, Susan, I like the fact that you said that she's more engaged and kind of actively you know, involved with the Brotherhood Without Banners. I think that's a good point. Um, I, I mean, I agree with that, and I still find her, though, she's still, I mean, maybe waiting isn't the right word. Waiting is what she did when she was alive. She's still, yeah, kind of anticipating, you know, she just wants her revenge, basically, and she is facilitating that as best as she can. Um, but I think it's it's just interesting that even after... She's kind of a zombie. She still has to not as much stand back, but she has to, I guess, wait. Maybe wait for bide, bide you know, her time. Bide her time. Yes, that's a good. I, I keep saying waiting because we've been waiting for the book for a while. So that's uh-huh. it feels like a long time to me. <laughs> uh, well, my uh, point that I wanted to bring up in this section about this chapter was the Talon Bond who she's with during the uh, during the battle here, he's the one that she sent with Winterfell. Um, so I wanted to just point that out and you know say we never have heard where. And I, he brought that up earlier, Matt. You know, it's, um, I think the last we heard, you know, it's like they went into the next, but they haven't come out. So <laughs> are they with Helen Reed? Mm. Good question. Good question. Um, I don't have anything else on Catlin. If anybody else does, feel free. I don't. Okay. Focusing well, uh, from last week? Yes, which, go ahead. Uh, I told you all that I would follow up about uh, who was potentially going to get married for that uh, Red Wedding 2 at, at River Run. And so I looked into that and... Um, I believe that the best reference for that is the Sir Dowdenester. Uh He's the one that Cersei has made him the Warden of the West. And he, he, he is the son of Stafford Lannister, who was both cousin and brother-in-law to Tywin. So if he was cousin and brother-in-law, then he must have been Tywin's wife's brother. Because his Tywin's 
wife was also Tywin's cousin. So yeah. this guy must have been his brother, or her brother, <laughs> the wife's brother. And anyways, um, when Jamie comes to River Run, this uh, Stafford uh, is the one who greets him, and he's, of course, real apologetic about the fact that he's been made by Warden of the West. He feels like Kevin must feel insulted about that, and he wants to be sure Kevin knows he didn't ask for it or anything. But uh, the thing, one of the things that's bothering him was that his father, uh, who had been killed uh, in some battle, I can't remember what exactly, but he had been negotiating a red wine wedding for him. And instead, um, Tywin had, in this, his negotiations with the phrase, promised that Stafford would marry a prey. And so, you know, Jamie's kind of challenging him on it um, because, you know, you have Lancel leaving his dairy wife, and uh, and uh, uh, Davin Lannister says to uh, to uh, Jamie, "Don't worry, I will wed and bed my stout, his grace stout." So um, he's the one that I think is most implied to be having the wedding at River Run. But what I couldn't find, and I've heard reference to this, and I don't know if it's in the text somewhere or if this was just in some theory or something, is the idea that um, uh, Walder Frey is wanting to come down to the twins or come down to River Run for a wedding so he can kind of lord over the fact that uh, his family is now in charge of, of River Run. Um, but I haven't found the evidence for that part of it. But anyway, that's the whole thing that I, as far as what... I could find to back up this idea about the uh, setting for a potential Red Wedding Part 2. That's awesome. That's a, Interest, that's, interesting that's stuff. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anything else, guys, or can we call it a night? I think that's it. Oh, I've got I think it's it. Okay. Very good. Well, guys, thanks again for joining us in the spoiler section. We do want to thank the people who came to the chat tonight. Several guests, plus Peter from Australia and Ion Throne, who always has good stuff. And uh, we will see you next time. I'm at Winterfell Pod. Stephanie is at SM Persephone. Spell that, <laughs> Stephanie. P-E-R-S-E-P-H-O-N-E. Goddess of the Underworld. Ah, and uh, put that uh, an SM in front of that. And uh, Susan is at Black Eyed Lily. Spell that, Susan. D L A C K E Y E D L I L Y. Black Eyed Lily. And remember, hashtag follow Bubba to 650. That's at F I T T E N T R I M on Twitter. Follow him. Bye. It won't stop. The recording won't stop. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.